Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. I'm Tommy Franklin. And I'm Andrew Benda. And uh, thanks for following and listening and tuning in, everyone. We really appreciate the support so far. Um, Our social media, you can stay active and engage with us there. We love chatting with you and uh, keeping you up to date. So you can follow us. On Instagram, that's at Weapon of Choice Podcast. Same for Facebook, at Weapon of Choice Podcast. And on Twitter, at Weapon Choice Pod. We appreciate all the support. This episode, we've got our interview with Marsha Belsky. Tommy, you said you had something to update me on, though, about this. Oh, yeah. So, you know, Marsha, you know, feminist comedian, um, doesn't pull any punches because she's incredibly brilliant and hilarious. And... On Facebook, uh, she—I think she's been she's been banned from Facebook before for basically objecting to like, you know, rampant, you know, responding to rampant sexism and even right. like violent right. threats from you know assholes, asshole dudes online. And recently, <clears throat> you know, after a barrage of uh, more rape and death threats from dumbasses online, she responded sarcastically, "Quote: Men are scum." unquote and then as a result facebook banned her for 30 days and you know like these dudes who are are, are violently attacking women online are not getting disabled they haven't their, been banned their accounts aren't getting disabled they're yeah. not being banned and these 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 dudes are reporting like you have to get reported but the fact that facebook even uh beyond acknowledging the reportage is agreeing with these fucking assholes right, right. and banning oh my god <laughs> it's crazy man so she's off Facebook for the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nuts. I mean, well, we know Marsh is active on Twitter. So if you if you listen to this episode and you want to reach out, get in touch, or just follow what she's up to, I think that's probably the best way for people to to find out what's going on. She also tells us at the end of the interview, kind of best best ways to keep in touch with her. Sure thing. But I mean, Andrew, like, what's your reaction? Like. Shit doesn't surprise us, unfortunately, but like, you know. Not in 2017. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then so Marsha created a, uh, she created another account, Marshall Belsky, and she like photoshopped a goatee in her profile picture. And like that lasted a solid like 48 to 72 hours before they shut that one down. That, they shut that account down for Marshall Belsky, and that was, that was pretty hilarious. But uh, you see, I don't know, man, this, this internet, I can't get my mind around it. How about you? Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and just like you said, there that the these the accounts of the men that are issuing these threats and these um, you know yeah threats of violence to women um, they're they're going unbanned, right? So it, unfortunately, it's a it's a mere reflection of our society. You know, people often say like the internet is like not real life or it's, it's just the internet, but in this very real way and many others, it's mirroring exactly what we see every day. And the audacity of these, these guys to step up their toxicity Ugh. In, in midst of this huge wave of, uh, of controversy, rightfully so the, the, the uprooting of powerful men in Hollywood, for example, like the audacity of these dudes to like, to like ramp up their their bullshit. Yeah, I don't, man. How do y'all feel about that? I hope y'all can uh, get you know get at us, um, reach out to Marsha eventually, and, and let us know. Drop us a line of uh, how you're thinking about how the internet is serving up. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, perpetuating? Yeah. The the most fucked up shit happening uh, currently. So, well, I can't think of a better time to, to run this interview. All right, yeah, I'm excited for everyone to hear um, what Marsha had to say, so let's get into that. Marsha Belsky is a New York City-based stand-up comedian, musician, and writer. From Tulsa, Oklahoma, she started a comedy career in Portland, Oregon, and has since performed around the country. She performs in the New York area and has contributed to popular satirical websites like The Reductress. She's a lead singer of a radical feminist band, Free the Mind, 
and she also founded the project The Headless Women of Hollywood. My name is Marsha Belsky. I'm a comedian in New York City. Why is comedy your weapon of choice and what battles are you fighting? That's just kind of how it happened. I think I was in comedy already and I couldn't help but having all this anger because when you're a woman, as you grow up, you know, things just keep happening to you. So you can't help but just get more angry the more you learn, just like I'm sure like anybody. So I just said, how do I make this anger funny and what haven't we seen before? So it's my weapon of choice because women aren't typically catered to as an audience in comedy in any sort of authentic way. So I, I made it my goal to speak to women in the way that we actually speak to each other when men aren't around telling us how we should speak. Mm -hmm. and, um, so how old were you when you realized you were a good shit talker? <laughs> um, wow, so young. I mean, I've been a shit talker my whole life. My Both my parents are lawyers, um, so I have always known how to argue. And I don't even necessarily enjoy arguing that much, but I'm good at it. I have really been a shit talker since day one because I had good parents. So my parents raised me, you know, like, for example, I was raised Jewish in Oklahoma. So I had a public school teacher who said a lot of anti-Semitic things and I went after him and my parents supported me as opposed to most parents that would be like, you're a sixth grader, he's your teacher, shut up, you know. So I've always been a shit talker. That's a great question. You know, you have so many great avenues for your art. Um, your podcast, Misandry, uh, the band Free the Mind, your stand-up. What was, talking about the beginnings of comedy, but also what was your first outlet where you, where you realized that you could utilize comedy in advocating for social change? Uh, for social change, I'm not sure. I think a lot of that happened inadvertently because mm. um, I moved to New York and you just kind of get your feet on the ground wherever you can. And I just started, like I said, trying to turn this anger I had as a feminist into something that did that was funny, that put the punchline before any sort of point that was supposed to be made. Um I think I realized pretty young in a subconscious way because I was into theater when I was a kid. And I saw how when I got that laugh, all of a sudden I wasn't the chubby girl anymore. I wasn't mm. the girl that you don't listen to anymore. I was, you know, people wanted to be around me when I could make them laugh. I think it was kind of a slow burn in that way, okay. how I learned to try and make a point through the punchline. When did you when did you take your first step to be a stand up? I started comedy at 19 mm -hmm. in Portland, Oregon. I had a fake ID and I thought I was so cool. <laughs> um, it's it's one of those things where when one door closes, another one opens because I really liked theater and I sort of stopped doing theater in high school um, because, you know, I was just like smoking weed and being an idiot. Sure. And then I got to college and I really wanted that performative outlet again. And so I signed up for acting and I wanted to pursue acting and then my acting 101 teacher was the worst teacher I've ever had. <laughs> and it was terrible. And we got in a fight. And it was a fight that made it so clear to me, you know, you dared to question me in any way. You will never be cast in this program type of deal. Mm -hmm. But I quit theater. And then I decided the summer after my freshman year to pursue stand-up because I should say I've been a fan of stand-up, like a very big fan since I was very young. Like when I was in Oklahoma, starting in middle school, I would like stay home every Friday. And if you remember, they used to have that marathon stand-ups on Friday where they just play half hours in premium blend like all <laughs> Friday night. <laughs> and like I would like tape that shit and like I watched all everything. And um, but I had never thought of it as something I wanted. I wanted to be like a rock star or, or like a famous actress. So I was getting scared. Like the second I did stand up, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I kind of wanted to jump back to, I really appreciated what you said. Comedy catering to women specifically and authentically. What has been your experience running at that and, and pursuing that? Well, I found that men are very defensive in a way that they don't quite understand why. Mm -hmm. um, and that's normal. I mean, that's the thing with movies, too. Like, I had a guy friend who loves every Will Ferrell movie. He loves every 
goofy, Joe Dirt, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason he hated Bridesmaids. And yeah. Bridesmaids wasn't funny at all. And I had to explain to him that I've been taught to watch men on screen and I can relate to their characters. And, you know, it's the same thing with, like, minorities and white people. Like, it's like you're taught to relate to the white male character. Everybody else is. But the white male himself is not taught to relate to characters that don't look like him. So he doesn't understand when he sees a black person on the screen or a woman on the screen or a gay person on the screen. He doesn't understand why he can't relate to them. He just can't. And so I think I found that a little bit in my comedy. And it's really, it's it's less men than I thought, honestly. It, there's a lot more men who get it than I assumed there would be. But it's always disappointing when there's a man that I respect and he has this such strong reaction to me and he can't figure out why. You know, he can't figure out why he's so bothered. And they're not mad about me saying what I'm saying or performing how I'm performing. They're mad at the women. They're mad that women are nodding and laughing. You know, because if I were just speaking and nobody related to me, they would just say that's one woman. But when they have this thought, which is reality, that perhaps they live in a bubble and perhaps all of the women around them speak to each other and think differently than they've ever imagined because they've never listened, that's what really starts to get this defensive reaction in them. And it's it's. Just, I like to just make the jokes I want to make, but I think when I say I try and cater to a female audience, I think all that means is just not catering to a male audience. Right, because right. every con- you are sort of subconsciously catering to a white male audience because that's what's at the clubs. You know the girlfriend will laugh along, but if the man's not laughing, the girlfriend's not going to laugh. So you better make that man laugh. I want the girlfriend to laugh. I don't give a shit if the guy next to her is laughing. My favorite response I've ever had is Free the Mind played a show, and we do this super over-the-top satirical kill all men, you know, mm-hmm. in very catchy songs. This this guy came up to me afterwards, and he's like, you know, we didn't like it. And his girlfriend goes, oh, no, I liked it. He didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want because that really doesn't, that's not how our society teaches us to be. Mm. Women are taught to eat shit and men are taught to never, ever eat shit. This is what my podcast co-host Ray Sani said recently. She said, women are taught to eat shit. And then that just lets men take bigger and bigger shits. So I don't, I try not to eat shit. Yes. Yes. And you said that uh, you expected more men to be in defiance and, uh, offended by that example um, in the scene, perhaps. So like, you know, performing and hanging out in the comedy scene where it is majority male comedians. And, and I know it's 2017, but nothing surprises us, right? And right. so are women like still in, you know, in, in modern times, the butt of so many jokes in that scene? And like, how do you process that? How does sexism feed into you developing stand-up material and even music? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because it gets frustrating. I mean, especially now that Trump's president, it's like I have so much anger at things big and small that it's hard to turn into humor because it's so overwhelming. And so then when I see things on the scene that bother me as well, it gets to be so much where I am just like, am I going to hate everybody? It's taught me to be a little bit more removed in terms of, you know, just doing my own thing, worrying about getting my own laugh. And I really have to just try and not worry about other people. When I see jokes that offend me, I just make a note like, oh, don't fuck with that person. And then if other people don't want to like my jokes, that's fine too, you know? But I think a lot of the sexism just exists in this sort of subconscious boys club way where they don't realize why it is that they only take men on the road and they only have men open for them and that's just who their friends are. And you try and explain to them, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I have no in unless I'm your girlfriend or dating one of your friends. But it, it's, it's hard because I still find myself getting sensitive and reactive But in the last probably year or two, it's been that lesson of, like I said, these men are going to just keep talking shit, doing shit, and their whole power is in trying to make me feel like I should shut up or making me spend extra energy 
to try and defend just my existence. And it, there's this idea that people always talk about in comedy that you have to be undeniable. Mm. And I think in some ways it can be not a complete um, picture because there are plenty of people who are undeniable who are still being denied opportunities. But I think what it's meant to mean is that a lot of these guys basically just so badly want me to be an unfunny SJW cunt <laughs> that when I go on stage and kill, you know, what can they say? What can they say? Their friends aren't going to say I'm not funny because I am. So that's basically where I've tried to go in my mind now is I'm just going to keep being funny and more and more women are going to keep being funny. That's the thing. I mean, you can only get away with saying women aren't funny when you're not putting women on stage or when you're only putting unfunny women on stage or when you're not even allowing women an opportunity to get into the door to prove that they're funny. And not only that, I mean that men have decided what's funny. So you get more women in there to decide what's funny and all of a sudden people's you know, humor changes. It's changed a lot and I feel so lucky to be where I'm at in comedy because I have so many female friends who are so hilarious and women before me didn't get to have that in comedy. It was very rare. You might have one close female friend who's also a comedian, but now I have dozens. So I feel fortunate for that and then I also feel like it's my responsibility to then work so that the next generation of female comedians will have it even better and that some of these douchebags that are sort of pitching their last scream in the boiling water will hopefully lose their centralized place even more. You were, you were doing comedy in Portland. You're now doing comedy in New York. Um, you know, what, what sort of trends are you just kind of seeing coast to coast there in terms of what, what things are different, um, what things are grossly the same in terms of those obstacles, those hurdles, the way that the, the scene is uh, challenging that sexism or maybe is it complicit? Totally. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, too, in terms of me being like, I was surprised how many men actually like it. That is in New York. That's very specifically like New York or East Coast places or, you know, there are any big city, really. But I've definitely done some road shows where it's just I'm like, oh, they do not like me. You know, like this is not their cup of tea. But every comic has that. So it's funny. But um, I think that in smaller cities, Sexism is always worse because I think that the there's there's a fewer number of people who run the scene by nature. That's usually going to be a boys club. It's not that there's not going to be a few powerful women up there, but it's usually just going to happen that there's when there's only a small number of people who control the scene, I guess it's just more of a risk that those number of people could be shitty. Because in New York, there are so many people that even if you have half of the people running rooms hate you, then the other half still booking you, you'll have a completely fine career. But if you're in a smaller scene, you know, if half the scene's not booking you, you're not going to have enough attention to break through. And my personal experience from, you know, the sexism aside was just in the smaller scene, I really, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm ready, you know, I'm the best comic there is, and I have my type five, and I could go on TV today. And then I moved to New York, and I did my first open mic, and I was like, oh, I have a lot of work to do. And I think that's why New York makes you a stronger comic, because you come out to the mics here, and they're not going to give it to you if you don't have it, you know. You have to work for it. And when they see you working for it, they really, you know, they respect it. That's also what I like about New York. If you put the work in, um, it comes back to you. Whereas I think in smaller scenes, that is true, but it's not necessarily true. Because, you know, there are people out every night who are not comedians. They're sociopaths, you know. And they're not necessarily getting booked, but these are the people in the scene. And in smaller scenes, I also think smaller scenes protect predators more. Um, big scenes protect plenty of predators, obviously, but I think that I've noticed, like, you know, in scenes like Chicago and smaller scenes in general, all the way down the line to whether it's, you know, if you're doing comedy in, like, I don't want to name a specific city because I don't know, but, like, say you're doing comedy in Santa Fe, if there's a predator, I found that they're normally a little bit more protected, if they're, if they're funny and, like, things like that, because 
there are so few stars in those scenes that they'll sort of do whatever it takes to protect their big guys, which I think harms women in the end. Um, I think women are e more easily dismissed in open mic scenes in smaller cities um, because obviously it's kind of going to change in the big cities first and then trickle down. But, I mean, that that's all sort of, like, my feelings. Um, it's just sort of my observations. Like, for example, I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is my hometown, but it's not where I started comedy. I started comedy in Portland. So I'd never done comedy in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I talked to my friend who knows a couple people. He's like, oh, I'll talk to these guys who do comedy. We'll get you a spot. I'm like, great. I go, and I do 10 minutes. I do, you know, really well. I'm this comic from New York. And afterwards, this guy, who is a totally nice guy, he comes up to me, and he's like, you know, it's too bad you don't live in Tulsa. You could really give the female comics here a run for their money. And I looked at him just plain. I wasn't mad because I really I didn't think he was a bad guy, and I just go, oh, what about the comics in general? And he really, he was taken aback. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, but it just wasn't something he would have ever thought about, just me as a comic in general. Did I lose you guys? Uh, we just turned off video because you, you just started to cut out a little bit. So okay, cool. may, maybe if we take um, the video off, we'll have better luck. I think that's better, yeah. Um, so that's what I noticed is just that sort of inherent dismissiveness isn't necessarily checked the same way. Mm. So if you have me, a comic from New York, saying, oh, well, why don't you just treat me like an equal person? He goes, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I will. But the girls in that scene might not feel comfortable enough to demand that. Yeah, right. You know, and the men are definitely not going to open the door for them. You have to shove it in. In that spirit, you know, what in what ways have you found to sharpen your tools, your weapons to break that door down? I mean, it's just life experience, really. I think every woman, um, there comes a certain point where you just have to live and accept that maybe the fight's a little bit harder, but you don't really see it that way because that's just how you've always lived, you know? So I don't really see it as, like, breaking down doors anymore because I'm trying to just be just be me, you know? And I guess it would be breaking... No, because also, yeah, I don't really see it as that anymore because I don't try and put myself in spaces that don't want me anymore. I've learned that lesson, and I've learned that they're never going to want you, and it's not fun to be the only girl that they approve of. That's not real approval. So I don't really think of it as breaking down doors anymore. I think of it as clearing my own path, I guess I would say. And I want to stick with the real, the really real stuff, but I do want to go back a little bit. Yeah. Um, a little bit back to you, you know, you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Jewish girl, Tulsa, yeah. Oklahoma. Um, you were watching plenty of premium blend on a Friday night. So I'm sure that was a, a, a great escape. Um, well, you know, did you grow up around certain characters? I mean, we all have characters in our lives, our entire lives. But did you grow up around certain characters, be it friends, schoolmates, family members that helped you at least subconsciously become um, primed to be, you know, a creative and a, and a better comedian? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, growing up Jewish in Tulsa used to kind of be my whole shtick, you know, when I first started comedy, because I definitely think that that's where the humor came from or comes from, because especially in elementary school, there's a lot of evangelicals in, in Oklahoma. Tulsa is a pretty liberal town. Um, so, you know, I always had friends. I always had people who approved of me. It's not like every single second was a witch hunt, but there was also, you know, there's this uh, blanket Christian culture. Um, and so, you know, like there was a girl in my class who would tell me I'm going to hell because I'm a Jewish person. And they've been told that by their parents, like that, they think of that as the right thing to do. So they think they're saving me, and this is, like, the nicest thing in the world they could do is tell a little girl to go tell a little girl that she's going to hell. We go to Hebrew school, and our teacher told us, um, well, why don't you tell her she'll be there on the next shish kebab? I think that the Jewish community has always used humor 
to cope because um, I don't know if you guys know, but people kind of hate Jews historically. So um, I think that uh, that was definitely a huge part of it. Which comedians, I mean, and, and some we have our favorites or people we look up to when we're younger, but uh, a lot of them that that it ages it doesn't age well right we like certain people certain figures which comedians were you uh were a big deal to you as you come up and do they remain that or have you gotten a newer influence as you look back and say well you know I was going through a certain conditioning like we all were growing up and now these are the people I actually inspire me today totally yeah that's a good question I mean I don't remember liking any super like problematic comedy, although I guess I probably did because that was just comedy at the time. Um, but I remember, like, I watched Sarah Silverman's Jesus Was Magic, Jesus Is Magic, when I was 16, and, and I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I think that a lot of girls, probably especially Jewish girls, when we first start comedy, because Sarah Silverman was one of the only women that we got to see among that, in that group, in that, like, sort of alt-comedy group, like, her and Maria Bamford, and so I feel like the first two months I did comedy, I was just doing a really hacky Sarah Silverman impression, you know, I was trying to do all these, like, edgy, weird jokes, and then and I think a lot of comedians, when they first start, they just imitate who their favorites are, and then you build who you are as you step away from that. And then some, that's why you see some people and you realize they never stepped away from it because they're five years in and they're just doing an impression of somebody else, you know? But so yeah, Sarah Silverman, I love, she, you know, I go, I go off and on. I really, I really like her, but I did see that she apparently did blackface one time. So, you know, that's, that's 2017. You just, you know, <laughs> it's just like, well, there goes Sarah. Um, but, <laughs> um, and also, yeah, I, there's a lot of stuff, too, I didn't realize, like, like, this sort of ironic racism that I really don't approve of, and I don't think at the time I understood what that was, like, and that's a lot of what she does, so I think in some ways I've grown out of that, um, the sort of, like, white people making ironically racist jokes that are just for other white people, um, I loved, you know, yeah, a lot of people. Um, I, I was obsessed with Cat Williams in my, like, early teens. I think Cat Williams was probably my favorite comedian. And it's so funny because I was, like, 18, and he does all these super sexual jokes, and I'm just laughing like I understand, you know? I'm like, <laughs> I know what the fuck he's talking about. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably, yeah. He maybe didn't age so well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, you know, and you, and you know, you talked about like a little bit about that anger and just like what we've been given with Trump. It's like hard to even like go into creative mode. Um, like, you know, so as a professional, as you've grown as a comedian, um, what about the industry uh, either has made you nervous or makes you nervous today as you navigate like, you know, he you know, heading down that path that you create for yourself in terms of your own definition of you being successful in the trade? Yeah, I, I get worried that um, I'll be pigeonholed, you know, because I started this whole joke of anytime a woman or a feminist speaks, she's going to be told that she hates men, she's going to be called a misandrist, she's going to, you know, they're going to say, oh, what do you just want men to die? And it's meant to undermine our anger that we deserve to have. Right, and I right. When, when women's anger is undermined, it just very quickly turns into sadness. And it's been shown, you know, how people, women especially, just get very depressed because it's just you have no place to put that anger and the world's not even, the world's telling you you're not even allowed to be angry, that your anger, your anger is sexist mm -hmm. while not acknowledging the sexism that you're angry about. And it's the same thing with all marginalized groups. You know, this is what's so frustrating. It's like they do the same thing um, with gay people and black people. And it's just like, and then when you have, it's like, you know, if you're a black woman, then you have that double exhaustion where 
your double is angry and they're telling you you have half the right even to be angry as a white woman. So that's where it's hard because I just feel like that anger mounts, but that's why I really try to create a truly cathartic release. And so I'm like, you know what? If they think feminists want all men to die, let me just show them what that looks like, you know? <laughs> just to show you how crazy that would actually be and how hilarious I can make that while also not undermining the real anger that we deserve to have. Because that's the thing. There are people that make fun of, you know, feminists and this and that, but it's with this underlying, and that's why feminism is bullshit. So I wanted to do these jokes about, oh, feminism's man-haters will let me show you that while also speaking the truth of, no, we deserve to feel this way. And where we, you know, but I get worried that, and it already has happened, that people willfully misunderstand uh, satire, sarcasm. And I think that women and minorities get punished for that more. You know, you have all these white guys screaming about PC culture and then they're not going to defend my song, All Older White Men Should Die, But Not My Dad, though. You know what I mean? And it's like, what, what actually pushes PC culture? You saying what's always been said and reinforcing status quo? Or me, you know, joking about killing all men so that we can actually talk about why probably about 60% of men deserve to die? <laughs> you know? Like, right. it's just frustrating because... I, I think that I'm I can, you know, explain my joke, but it just gets annoying that I have to because sometimes people will bring me on stage, uh, oh, this is Marsha Belsky, she created Kill All Men, which I didn't. But she's like she's like, Oh, this is Marsha Belsky, she wants all the men to die and now here is her comedy. Oh yeah. I go on stage and I'm already coming from a negative because if you just say with no humor, This is Marsha, she wants the men to die, people do think I'm a hateful person. Right. And I try and explain to them that's the joke, you know, they really don't want to listen. I had a male comedian friend block me because he said he got so mad at Kill All Men. And I had to explain to him, if you're this mad about one thing, it's literally just me that you're seeing in your timeline. Imagine what being a woman would be like. I right, right. I single man that says something that's sexist, you know, like, I mean, I can, but it's like that says something that bothers me. So it's frustrating because they accuse me of wanting this safe space when the only people I see wanting a safe space are them. We want a safe space from assault and from, you know, from from being made to feel like we shouldn't even talk at all. And they are actively creating, they are actively protecting what has always been a safe space for them away from women and minorities, you know, and gay people and trans people and anybody outside of the norm or any woman who can't conform to that norm. Mm, they want to, they want to save space from being put on blast, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, you know what? Cause that's what I always say. I'm like, nobody is censoring you. Nobody is telling you that you can't say things unless it's hate speech. Obviously, you know, if you're, it's like, Nobody is censoring you, but what you're really mad is that I get to call you an asshole and people hear me when I call you an asshole because a woman calling a man an asshole never affected shit. But now, you know, people listen more and there's the internet and there's, you know, different platforms. And I think that's where they are. The fragility really comes out because I, I always say, I'm like, you're allowed to be an asshole and I'm allowed to call you an asshole. So what's our problem here? What are we <laughs> mad about? You know, have you been told down or have you been told to tone down your art? Oh, totally. Yeah. All the time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, but even if it's not my art, even if it's just me, cause I very much am who I am and I try to be that more, you know, I try, yeah. I try to live up to my reputation. I, I want to, confront men if I if they're doing something I disagree with and I don't think that I'm doing it in an attacking way because I really pick and choose that's the thing these guys feel like I'm coming after everybody and I'm like if you saw the shit that we follow on a daily basis you would be astounded because I wait until I feel like it's something important because and, and knowing even then they'll tell me just calm down um 
But no, yeah, I've had people tell me, chill on this shit. I had this one comic who can't fathom why I still don't like him, who messaged me before I even knew him. Um, women like you just want to throw tantrums for attention and never actually know what they think. And I sent him back, I know exactly, and this is a guy who's been on TV and stuff, and I sent him back, I know exactly what I think. I don't think that you know what the fuck you think. You know what I mean? Like, it's, what the fuck are you talking about? And then his arguments to me, he goes, you can thank the, you can thank men for the roads that were built, for the buildings that you live in. I said, you really think, first of all, that that was all men? And <laughs> second of all, do you think that women wouldn't have liked to have been allowed out of the house? during those times, you know, like, and the women obviously who work in those industries face incredible harassment and condescension and all of that aside. And this guy literally says to me, are you really trying to tell me that women would just try and get jobs and they would be told no girls allowed? And this is where I say, hey, why am I an intelligent, hilarious person having to go through gender studies 101 with every douchebag on the scene? Like, I can't, it's not my responsibility Go read a fucking book. They don't even understand the fake history. Tell me. You cut out just on that so, last point. Just can you like, just, Marsha, can you say that again? Because I don't want to lose what you just said. Yeah, I just, it's, it's frustrating having to go through Gender Studies 101 with every dude on the scene because they don't even understand the basics or any history of sexism. They truly think that we live in one world and that 51% of the population are in this grand conspiracy to make men feel bad about themselves, you know, and that mm -hmm. I don't know what I think. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's also, I wonder how much these men actually think that versus how much they just, you know, they, they want your attention and they want to take up women's time. So I'm also really mm -hmm. careful. Like, if I can tell a guy is just entertained by, like, an angry quote-unquote feisty woman i hate that shit so i just shut that down yeah speaking of shutting shit down like i mean when you're doing it with comedy like what's what's that feeling like um i mean i, I understand that sound you know i can imagine it gets tiresome and then i can also imagine it it being hilarious and like and like you said you've got people on your side like women and and, and men who are you know who, who stand with you and the fact that you're hilarious so like shutting people down via comedy, like what's that like? It does feel great, but it's hard because I don't, I don't actually inherently enjoy confrontation that much. But as a woman, you don't have a choice, especially as a woman pursuing comedy. You either confront or you get walked all over. And I still choose to be walked over more times than I care to admit, but most of the time, you know, at this point, I'll confront or confront back. Um, but it's really fun. I mean, there's no better feeling than having the right words at the right time. And it's a skill that you build up as a comedian or just as someone trying to be intellectual. And Ray Sani, my podcast host, is like the most articulate person I've ever met in my life. So it's like I thought that I was an articulate person who could always pull out the right words. And then I met Ray, and I was like, holy shit. You know, so I just aspire to just have the right words when the time is right. And when you do get those perfect words and you can shut them down, it really feels great. You know, like I, for example, I had this, um, I did this blog called the headless woman of Hollywood. Yes. And it was about objectification in Hollywood and it went viral. And one of the pictures I used was of this guy who a lot of comedians hate because he stole jokes, the fat Jew. So one of the headless women things was him. It was literally a photo of him <laughs> on three headless, like he was like sitting on a chair on like three women's torsos. And so I used it and I just, you know, made a joke about it. And he direct messaged me because we have mutual friends on Facebook. And he's like, okay, so what can we do? And I posted the whole interaction online because he was basically trying to tell me that me, quote-unquote, calling him out was not a good way for me to make my point. 
And I was like, you know, but isn't it? You know, like I just, I just didn't back down at all. And I really had the perfect words for everything he came at me. And I eventually just, I mean, bested him. I mean, and I, I wouldn't say that about myself normally. I've had plenty of confrontations that I wouldn't walk away from being like, wow, you really won because normally nobody wins. But um, with that one, it was just like, you know, don't come at me unless you're ready, dude. Like a lot of people, I, I think it's, it's a lot of men too where – I'm like, I can tell you're a little bit sexist because you don't realize how smart I am. You know, I, like, it's just like, if you weren't sexist, you would understand that you're not as smart as me. Like, right, right. <laughs> that's always fun when there's someone who's just like, I'm, it's like, I'm smarter than you and the only reason you don't think so is because I'm a woman. So let's go. I mean, you're always going to get trolls. And the way my friend Blair Saki explains it to me is if a man were just screaming in the middle of the street, you wouldn't stop to hear what he has to say. But because we're on the internet, someone can at you and just say the meanest shit ever, and you're basically forced to read it. You know, whether or not you want to say it bothers you, you're basically forced to read it. But I am getting better at just, you know, trying to not let it affect me. But trolls are going to troll, and... I posted something on my Facebook today that you guys can see where this guy went and found a joke of mine from four months ago on Facebook and messaged me, you know, to say that I was sexist and this and that and using all these big words that he doesn't know how to use. And to me, I say, engage to the point that you get your joke in and then never beyond because they'll never stop. These trolls, they'll never stop. And all they're trying to do is to make you feel either bad enough about yourself or exhausted enough that you just want to quit. So I'm like, hey, babe, never going to happen. So keep trying, you know. I, I really appreciated a quote of yours that that was, um, jokes are reality better articulated. And in mm. this era of alternative facts and fake news, when reality is being distorted by grand, huge powers, how are jokes our way of truth telling? I think it basically comes down to if something makes you laugh, at least a good majority of the population, whoever laughs at it finds it true. I think that's why we get upset when chauvinistic or racist jokes are laughed at because we know in some way or another people are laughing because it's still true to them. So I think you have to fight that negative truth through humor um, with the sort of punching up type of truth through humor is what I like to do. So I think that there's a couple things. I think for me as a woman and for this sort of more and more female comics in general, it's really just as simple as that. I mean, it's if someone makes you laugh, you can't deny that they're a person anymore. Particularly in my case, I just try and tell truth about feminism through these jokes. Feminism isn't about being a killjoy or whatever the fuck men have painted it as. And in general, women laugh about the darkest shit because we have to. So I hated this idea that women somehow aren't funny or have a sense of humor and that we've let that be, per not women, but that people have let that be perpetuated for so long because every single woman knows that not to be the truth. Can you kind of talk about like that incredible double standard? Right. Like I think men are committed to be edgier. Um, I think it's also what's defined as edgy is different for women and men. Because, for example, if a woman goes on stage and tells a joke about sex or tells, God forbid, more than one joke, many jokes about sex, it doesn't matter how many jokes not about sex she has she's going to be described as raunchy mm -hmm. and she's a sex comic and, you know, blah, 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 sort of like Amy Schumer in a way. Mm -hmm. But when a man talks about sex, a man just talks about sex. Right. And even like I have friends who are pretty innocent, I guess. And when they talk about sex on stage, it's not jarring. It's not weird. And I still feel, I, I talk about sex on stage sometimes, but I don't really that often. And just because that's just not the jokes I've written 
not like I've censored my sex jokes, but there have been a couple jokes that I've wanted to do, but I just know that the reaction's going to get like a ooh or just anything more of a pause than I would ever want it, you know? And so I feel like when a woman talks about sex, people get this, oh, here she goes, trying to be edgy and blah, 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 blah. Whereas a man talking about sex and his dick, you know, that's just a man being a man. But if a woman talks about her vagina, it's like, how come women are always trying to do these pussy jokes, you know? And it's, and it's like men have been humping stools for literally decades, but <laughs> they're not sex comics. So I think the standard of edgy is a double standard. Um, I think that women feel less inclined to try and fail. I think because men know that they'll be given more of a pass. I really love when I see a woman who's unafraid to fail because in some ways I still feel like I'm overcautious and that I'm too afraid to fail. Um, expressing truth through comedy, especially in these dark times, it, it is about just centralizing that you can't change how we think. You know, if you have someone like Trump who's literally trying to brainwash people and say fake news and will say one thing and then say two seconds later that he didn't just say the thing that he said, when you make fun of him or when you make fun of things, you have the power of truth. That's why those politicians hate these joke shows. Because if Saturday Night Live lands a sketch that rings super true to people, that is undermining to the reality of the situation because reality is very self-serious. You know, so if you get the laugh, you undermine that seriousness. And if you undermine that seriousness, people may question. Can you say about more like a couple of weeks ago, you talked about uh, feminism not being a competition. So where do you see that popping up? And is it usually like men who pit, pit y'all, you know, pit women against each other in some of those instances? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very nuanced. I think that in that particular case, what I was talking about was this sort of like Eliza Schlesinger sort of new, usually white feminists who have their awakening as a woman because women become more radical with age pretty much no matter who you are unless you're fighting it. So wow. there are women who, you know, throughout their 20s, they'll be a guy's gal and they'll say things like women are too much drama and they'll really truly feel that way. And then maybe they get to their 30s and they realize that the men who they thought had their backs actually only had other men's backs and that being the special girl who changes the boys' minds is not actually a real thing because those boys are still sexist, even if you're the exception to their rule. So I think that those women tend to see feminism as a hierarchy and when they're questioned, especially if they're questioned by black women in terms of their white feminism, it turns into this, well, here's all I've done for feminism. And I've seen a lot of male feminists do this too. I mean, this guy, I said to him, I disagree with you. And instead of addressing why he disagreed with me, he answered back, I donate to Planned Parenthood. You know, and it's like, that's not an answer. I don't care if you donate to Planned Parenthood. That doesn't have anything to do with our conversation right now, you know? So that's where I think the feminism as a hierarchy comes in, where it's, it's capitalistic feminism. It's the idea that you think you can buy feminism or that somehow if you put in enough time, that negates or makes you uh, immune to any sort of criticism by other women, which is inherently anti-feminist to think that way, um, to think that because you've helped women, you should therefore no longer have to listen to them if they disagree with you. That doesn't make any sense, you know? So I also think that that hierarchy, of course, is imposed on the outside in from men, and then from the inside, it's imposed with white feminists putting themselves at the top and ignoring, you know, other voices. Um, I also think that straight feminists tend to do that with gay feminists. Um, you know, cis feminists do that with trans feminists. So I think that's where the hierarchy plays in and why I'm against that and why I try and make jokes that make fun of it. Because, like, I wrote this piece for the actress has feminism gone too far now that it's specifically critiquing me? 
that was sort of about this, you know, she starts, she's like, I'm a level eight feminist, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you know and it's um, it's like I I own a t-shirt company that sells shirts that say feminist on them how can you say that that I don't listen to women you know so that's where the hierarchy comes into play what do you want the people listening to know Uh, if I could let the people listening know anything well if they're men I would tell them to either prepare to hide underground in bunkers for the indefinite future or to try and enlist in my spy program and to start memorizing the list of male crimes that they'll be forced to recite uh, before they're allowed into the matriarchy. So that's going to take you about 10 years. That's going to take you about a full decade to read and repent from the full list of male crimes throughout history. So that's going to be really important. Um, For the female listeners, or non-cis male listeners, um, I just want to tell you that you're perfect and that you'll never die. Um, You're actually not able to die and that for every man you kill, a woman will be brought back to life. So please keep that in mind. We've lost a lot of women this year. I want them back. Carrie Fisher, we can bring them all back if we just try hard enough, ladies. Um, And, you know, mace every man you see. I I think that that's important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also, I also just want everybody to examine if they're having a defensive reaction to something, you know, you're totally allowed to, but if you are a straight white male, instead of seeing it as a sexist attack, maybe wonder why everybody around you was so angry and you had no idea and what that might mean instead. Yeah, and straight black men too. We got a lot of fucked up shit we got to deal with here. When it comes to, <laughs> well, when it comes to this, pile up to the patriarchy in this way. But I think that we talk about this on our podcast. I think that they also sometimes learn that this white male patriarchy is never going to treat them as equal. And so to suck up to them, you know, to sidle up to the oppressor, it's just a lose lose move. Lose. Um, are you are you taking any? Are you currently taking any? art in that's re-energizing you? We're in this interesting age where I feel like we're at the pinnacle of a sort of new movement. And so for Ray and I, that's our final wave feminism. But I feel like there's a change in consciousness happening slowly in a lot of different areas. Um, I don't know if it's because of social media. And I think these things are, of course, two steps forward, one and a quarter steps back. I was very inspired by my friend Patty Harrison and Lorelai Ramirez. I just did their, sh- I did Lorelai's show, Not Dead Yet, and it was like, you know, kind of a dark-themed comedy show, and Julio Torres was also on it, he's hysterical, and so I was inspired by that, and I saw this musician who was named Madison, oh, fuck, and I can't remember her last name, of course, so I can't even give her a proper shout-out. But I was so inspired. She was incredible. She did all these loops and things like that. I was inspired by Waxahachie, the band. Uh, I got to see them. They're a Philadelphia girl band. Um, Oh, and I, you know what? I feel like I was really inspired by, I've been reading so much about this group called the Gorilla Girls. I think that's what they're called, the Gorilla Girls. And they're basically these women who have existed since the 60s or 70s. And they're anonymous, and they wear masks. And they point out how most major art museums are still 98% male artists, even though you have a huge number of female artists who are at that higher level. And you can't see who does the art. You know what I mean? Like, so why is there this behind-the-scenes male-dominated gallery culture and these women who are artists themselves but remain anonymous basically go around blowing up these people's spot and pressuring them to put more female artists in the mainstream, you know, year-round exhibits? Um, And they were, like, on the Colbert show a while ago. So that is what inspired me recently. Awesome. Um, we're gonna we're gonna plug a lot of your stuff. Like 
Headless Women of Hollywood and Free the Mind, your band. Um, and I just can't reiterate enough. Uh, Miss Andrew podcast. Miss Andrew with Marsha and Ray is a podcast. You all out there listening need to get up on that. Get all the way up on that and learn some shit and laugh with them. Laugh with us. Um, shout out to Ray. Uh, Ray is... Uh, along with Marsha, is very inspirational, and I really appreciate everything they have to say on the show. Um, so everybody needs to listen to that podcast ASAP. Can you tell us what the best ways to engage with your work online or on social media? Kind of give everybody a, where we can find you. Yes. So if you want to see my band, go to facebook.com slash freethemind with two E's in V. Um and we just put out a music video. On, you can find it on YouTube. It's called All Older White Men. And you guys will hear the music soon on this podcast. Um, and would, that was a really fun music video to make. Uh, my website is just my name, marshabelsky.com. My Twitter is the same. I tweet a lot. I do write for Reductress occasionally. So you can search on Reductress under my name, for the articles I've written for them. And um, I run a show, if you're in New York, I run a show um, every month. This month it's Tuesday, October 24th, 8 o'clock at Our Wicked Lady in Bushwick. And we have an incredible lineup. We have Lisa Traeger, we have Dulce Sloan, who's the new correspondent for The Daily Show. We have Cocoon Central Dance Team, who just did this incredible movie, Snowy Bing Bongs, that's, like, super popular right now. Um, and, yeah, we have Josh Sharp. We have George Siveris, Julia Shiplett. So many amazing people. So if you're in New York, come out to that. Also, um, in January, January, Thursday, January 25th at Union Hall, I will be doing Handmaid's Tale the Musical. So if you like my brand and if you like my music, you will really like this parody of The Handmaid's Tale that me and my friend and writing partner, Melissa Stokowski, are writing together. So that will be really fun as well. Well, this is, uh, it's been an honor to talk to you. Uh, we're really glad. That yeah, we thank can you so we much. Catch you in, uh, are you in Brooklyn? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Um, and yeah, look on my website. I try and keep it updated in terms of where I'm at and what I'm doing. Yeah, we really appreciate having you on. Marsha Belsky. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. This was so fun. Let me know. Let me know if you're ever in New York. Will do. Will do. Take care. All Talk right. Great to see you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Marsha. This has been another special menu production. Thank you for tuning in. As always, we want to hear from the artists out there. What is your weapon of choice? And for all those listening... What art are you taking in that is helping you fight the fight, helping you recharge, helping you keep going? You can email answers to those questions to weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Cool, cool, Andrew. So we're going to play one of Marsha's songs, actually, from her band, Free the Mind. The song is called All Older White Men. It's catchy as hell, like a lot of their music, and you're really going to enjoy this. I want you to bump it and share it with your people. Enjoy the song, y'all. We'll see you next time. This is a song about domestic terrorism. There's a whole generation of people really stinking up the joint. P.U. Think they can talk at us all day, but never really land a point. Uh, hello? So now I think the time has come For all of us to pull the plug And say All older white men should die But not my dad a great guy and he fights the good fight I swear I swear I swear he's old and he's white but for me he's always been there been there there. no it's these other guys holding us back so guys let's cut Marty some slack hey Marty say all older white men should die but not my dad not my dad
Knock, knock. No one's here right now. If you don't answer this door, I will arrest you. Okay, who's there? An evil white man. Always. Behind every locked door, there's an evil white man holding it closed in fear. Cause deep down he knows the end is near. <laughs> it's here now, bitch. All older white men should die, but not my dad. Dad, he really breaks the molds. I can sense some resistance. If you knew him, you would really be sold. Oh, and veterans, they get a pass. But not if they say they hate the blacks. Ugh, bye, soldier. All older white men should die, but not my dad. They're sneaky, they wanna control my pee-pee. Ugh! Stop it, Gramps! Get out of there, Santa Claus. Ugh. Vanderbilts, Rockefellers, bye! Not one of them is my dad. Not my dad! Boat Johnsons, from Johnson and Johnson. Hope that note to your shampoo really works. Cause now the time has come for you, jerks. Biden and Sanders, we could save them too. You know what? Matter of fact, let's just go ahead and save all the Jews. <laughs> they were only made white in 1952. So baby boomers, say boo -hoo. Aww. Cause now it's time for all of you to go boop. All older white men should die, but not my dad. Should die.